you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. LAist Studios. What did it look like on the inside when you first walk in? Oh, it just wasn't fancy at all. It looked like a like a pub. You know, it had some tables and there's like a little dance floor. You know, everything's kind of sticky and it's kind of grimy. So the hip hop culture kind of bled in through there. There's a lot of the you know the African American guys that were there, like they're they're dancing and hanging out with the locals. It was like a little melting pot within Itaewon. So when I was in Korea and, and we went there and we saw something so familiar and heard all these songs, we were like naughty by nature and all these like songs that we were playing in the clubs in LA. This is Jay Chong. He was in Korea in the early 90s making music with his group, Solid. Moon Knight reminded Jay of his home, Los Angeles, and the underground hip hop clubs he would go to every weekend. When Jay was hanging out at Moon Knight, he had no idea he was on the cusp of making it big and becoming a superstar in Korea. Or that the group he was part of, Solid, would go on to make K-pop history as the Korean kings of R&B. So in our last episode, we talked about how Black American music and culture entered South Korea through the American military presence. But there was another way Black music was making its way into K-pop in the 90s, Korean-Americans. Which is where Solid comes in. The first time I heard about Solid was through a music exec named Bernie Cho. Bernie grew up in the States, but he was living in Korea in the early 90s. And he saw Sotheji and boys rise to fame. I was in Korea at the time when Sotheji had debuted, but for me, he was part of a bigger scene, a bigger movement. The movement Bernie's talking about included a bunch of other groups from the early 90s that introduced Black American music to mainstream Korea. And Solid was one of those groups. Solid, they introduced a new music genre to Korea, R&B. The way they brought in R&B was the fact that uh, they took what was obviously a very African-American genre and found ways to make it feel Korean. Their impact and importance on the Korean music scene, Korean music industry, and more importantly, K-pop, is something that um, is you know worthy of not just recognition, but respect. So Solid was made up of three Korean-Americans from L.A. County, and they were the first Korean-American group to make it big in Korea. And this was surprising to me because, growing up, my friends and I had been aware of every Korean-American person doing anything cool. <laughs> Tiffany Young from Girls' Generation? We knew she was from Diamond Bar, right outside L.A. When Ken Jong jumped out of the car in The Hangover and showed his ding-dong? Of course, dude. That is cool. We knew that was a Korean ding-dong. Even Chloe Kim, when she started killing it at the X Games and then the Olympics, 
We cheered her on like she was our own cousin. That run right there, that is guaranteed gold. Every time we saw a Korean-American person succeed and influence the culture, it was like a tiny spark of hope and inspiration. So when I heard about Solid, this Korean-American group from L.A. who had influenced Korean music, I couldn't believe I'd never heard their story before. From Elias Studios, this is K-Pop Dreaming. I'm Vivian Yoon, and in this episode, we are going to talk about a Korean R&B group called Solid. And we'll see how three Korean-American kids from Los Angeles went from making beats at home to selling out stadiums all across Korea as the Korean kings of R&B. And we'll see how Solid's Korean-American identity led directly to their success. We are going to start this story with Jay Chong, who we heard from in the opening. Jay would eventually become the producer of Solid and essentially create the group's sound. Jay was born in South Korea, but when he was around seven years old, he moved with his family to Cerritos, a city in L.A. County. Nowadays, Cerritos has a huge Asian-American population. But when Jay first got there in 1980, Cerritos was mostly a white suburb. There were pockets of Korean communities nearby, but that was kind of it. There was a Korean market in our neighborhood, but it was one of those small little like liquor store type markets. It wasn't like the big supermarkets we have now. Jay's parents had a tough time when they first moved to the U.S. Back in Korea, the family had been pretty well off. But once they got to California... They started like a shoe repair shop and basically started from the bottom again, right? My mom, she told me like when she packed her bags for America, she put like party dresses and all the stuff. Because she thought she was going to be like going to dinner parties, like Hollywood movies, you know. Oh my God. I knew exactly what Jay was talking about. I feel like this is such a common experience for a lot of Korean immigrants I know, where People have this glamorous idea of what America is like, and then they get here and find that things are very different from what they imagined. So Jay's mom had a tough time adjusting to life in the States. But when I asked Jay about his experience moving to America in the 80s as a little kid, he brought up something positive. When I lived in Korea, I remember they would play like these kid shows like with music. Oh, (laughs) po-po-po. Stuff like that, right? Back yeah. in the day. You know, they would say stuff like, oh, music makes the world go around, you know, yeah. the rivers flow and all this stuff. I'm like, no, I hate this stuff. <laughs> and then I remember moving to America and just listening to music in the school bus. And back then it was like Pink Floyd. That was a game changer for me. Jay quickly fell in love with rock and glam metal. Ozzy Osbourne and Van Halen. He taught himself how to play the guitar and formed a band in middle school. Our band would perform at like every church around Southern California. The traveling praise team, yes. Yeah, so it was like a rock band. So Jay spent a lot of time at church, and that's where he met the next member of Solid. Gosh, we were, it must have been like 10 or 11. John Lee, a.k.a. Ijun, the group's rapper slash DJ. As a kid, John wasn't into rock like Jay. He was listening to classical music. Bach, Mozart, and movie soundtracks like John Williams. But by the mid-80s, Jay and John discovered a new genre of music that was on the rise, hip-hop. They became obsessed with hip-hop and R&B. And by the time they were in the fifth grade, 
they were making their own beats at home. John even used his parents' turntable to practice scratching. <laughs> I don't think they liked the fact that I was using it like it was a tool or something instead of just a playing device. Eventually, I ended up getting my own turntables at a local Radio Shack. So Jay and John do their thing all the way to high school. And then one day, a new kid shows up at their church. I was born in Atlanta, Georgia. So that's why they named me after George, you know, George Washington, George, Georgia. And, you know, that famous song by Ray Charles. Georgia, Georgia, you know. This is George Kim, or Kim Joan, the lead vocalist of Solid. George fit in great with Jay and John because he had also loved hip-hop since grade school in Atlanta. You know, you know, when you had the little boom box, you would carry it on your shoulder. That's what we did. And we would uh, have like cardboard boxes hidden behind the trees at the bus stop. And then while waiting for the bus, we would all just break dance, and, you know, pop and wave and do all this stuff. So the three became fast friends and bonded over their love of music. Jay you know, introduced me to all the greats, like Babyface's first album, Tender Lover. That's a scrumptious uh, morsel of music there. By the end of high school, Jay was producing music. George had discovered he had a great singing voice, and John was a full-on DJ working parties and events. Here's Jay again. The cool thing with DJs is that you know, they're part of this thing called the record pool. So they get the records maybe six months before it hits the radio. So we got to hear a lot of cool music because of John. Uh, he was a DJ, and so like he would make us like mixtapes. He would DJ at a lot of parties. When you're a DJ, you sort of need a truck. <laughs> and so uh, uh, he had a, uh, Jay had a truck, so we were sort of like, we'd, we'd have all the equipment in our car, and then we'd go and we'd be the crew. So we would go to a lot of parties and kind of get involved in the whole life of uh, that whole late 80s, early 90s thing. Jay started producing a local rap group who were part of an underground network of rappers. And he went with them to different clubs around Los Angeles. So I was like that token Asian guy in every hip hop club, like in the underground. And I I sort of saw that whole, like kind of the renaissance of hip hop in the early 90s in LA through those guys. So in the late 80s and early 90s, you had the rise of West Coast hip-hop. People like Ice-T, N.W.A., Tupac, Cypress Hill, and so many others dominated the radio with their raps. And by the early 90s, fueled by the popularity of these artists, Los Angeles became the epicenter of hip-hop. And underground clubs started springing up where groups could perform and hopeful MCs could battle with other rappers. We all had lowriders, so these cars that just were slammed to the ground. That's how I rolled. We just packed these cars with friends, the homies. We would just cruise up to LA, and our friends would be performing at some of these very underground clubs. Very grimy, very gritty, you know. And you know, you could you see smoke from the DJ booth, just fill up the whole place, and bunch of dudes. And they're just they're not there to talk to girls. They're not there to like get drunk. They're there to just battle. But Jay wasn't a rapper. His battle was on the dance floor. I was, you know, believe it or not, I was, I was, I was a locker. I used to pop lock in this in this crew called the Freaks of Nature. 
Through this hip-hop scene, Jay got connected with a Taiwanese-American boy band called LA Boys. You gotta start with the ABCs, then you gotta learn it like the Taiwanese. LA Boys had a huge following in Taiwan, like Backstreet Boys level huge, and they wanted to collaborate. So the three guys got to work creating demos for LA Boys, with Jay making the music, John writing the raps, and George singing the choruses. But even though they were making music together, they hadn't considered becoming a group themselves. Until one day, when the three of them were in the studio working on something for LA Boys. We sang a little a cappella harmony, just on a whim. And I guess their managers liked what they saw, so they asked us to uh, make a demo. Up until then, we never really thought about like making like a band together. <laughs> we recorded uh, something inside my parents' bathtub to get that reverb effect. And it was straight one take. We recorded on a four track. And we sent it off. Didn't hear back from anybody. So the LA Boys manager was like, you guys should be a group. And then you guys are like, yeah. okay. They're like, why don't you guys make a band together? You guys already like have all the pieces. I think it was about three or four months later that uh, the manager gave us a call and said, hey, we're very interested in you guys, but here's the catch. Since we are a Taiwanese label, you have to pretend that you are ABCs, American-born Chinese. Wow. In the meantime, there is a production company in Korea, like, they heard about us, and they're like, yo, like, you guys are Korean. Like, why are you guys going to Taiwan? You guys need to come out to Korea and do it out here. In the end, the guys signed with a Korean company. They were going to Seoul. That's coming up after the break. Support comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years showcasing Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, featuring over 200 works ranging from narrative film, documentary films, photo exhibits, and new media. VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at las.com slash events. It's the spring of 1993. Jay, John, and George book a one-way flight to Seoul, South Korea. And as soon as they get there, they're bombarded with questions from Korean music producers. We got pulled in, in a private room and we were sort of interrogated. You know, where do you get those jeans or where do you get those pants? Where'd you get that haircut? What do you use to make music? What kind of equipment? The producers want to know everything about these Korean American kids from LA. Remember, this is just one year after OG K pop groups, Hotejia Boys, had made it big. So music labels and executives were really on the hunt for the next big thing when the solid guys showed up, repping hip-hop culture directly from Los Angeles. And the producers could not get enough. The head producer would sit down in front of me with like a notepad, and he was like, 
jot down all the stuff. He says they literally took notes to try and copy the guys' American sound and style to replicate it with their own groups. So the guys got all kinds of positive attention from these music producers. But the rest of the country? Everybody stares at us on the street. Like the taxis won't even pick us up. We had the shaved heads with like long bangs, baggy clothes. The guys were repping L.A. hip-hop culture and gear in a way that was new to everyday Koreans. Even beyond the fashion, hip-hop music was new too. And the company that signed Solid, they had no idea how to reproduce the sound. So when it came to actually making their first album, Jay and the guys were pretty much left to figure things out on their own. The company really didn't have any musical knowledge, so they're like, oh, just do whatever you want. Jay does his best to put an album together in Korean with little guidance. And George gets to work learning how to sing in Korean. I actually didn't speak Korean. I was the only one in the group that didn't speak Korean at that time. George, you know, he would have to like, like, like phonetically write out every Korean word in English. So they're working on the album, trying to adjust to life in Korea. But they still try really hard to stay true to their L.A. roots. We had what, what's called Cordy which is short for coordinator, basically a stylist, right? Like an image coordinator. And um, we didn't like a lot of things that they were giving us. So we do a lot of shopping to Itaewon. We would buy a whole bunch of like Ben Davis. Back then, like workshop clothes were in as hip hop gear. And, and that was cool to us. To Koreans, we look like mechanics. <laughs> <laughs> But, but that was cool for us. So Solid was different. And that fact, coupled with the time they were spending working on their album, it left them kind of isolated. So, you know, Solid guys, we're out there like, like really lonely because we didn't have friends and we're just kind of like kind of confiding in each other, you know. One way Jay tried to connect with other Koreans was through dance. Because remember, he had been part of a dance crew in California and Seoul had its own rising hip hop dance scene. One day, this, you know, singer Kim Gammo, he's like, hey, come to our dance studio. So I went over there. I met the head choreographer who was basically the group Clone now. But back then, there were uh, choreographers. Clone, the dance duo that Kang Wonle, or Kang from the last episode, co-founded. So after, after dance rehearsal, he was like, hey, uh, you want to go to this club called Moon Night? And they took me to Moon Night for the first time. Kang was the one who took Jay to Moon Knight. And once Jay got there, he felt instantly at home. It was kind of like a, like a little taste of home because that's what I was doing back in L.A. Uh, was just hanging out at these kind of underground clubs every weekend. It was just like, ah, I'm so familiar with this surrounding. John felt the same way. I just remember the whole scene was like something you would see in an American rap video where it's just like a bunch of like hip-hop heads like bobbing their head to the music. Um, just that scene that right there with the dim lights and the light effects going, is, it was just all perfect. It felt like home. Eventually, the guys finished their first album, but they still don't have a name for their group. So they start brainstorming, and the company that signed them has some interesting ideas. They threw, threw out some really stupid names, too. And it's like, oh, my goodness. It's like Red Pig. Pig's uh, Luck. 
And the red is、uh, something special also. Thankfully, they don't go with the name Red Pig. Instead, they latch onto John's eight ball cane, which is a black walking cane with an eight ball on top. John brought it with him to Korea from SoCal because he thought it was cool. And now it serves as the perfect inspiration. Here's George. The eight ball is a solid, right? He means solid, like stripes and solids in pool. And、that was basically from John's cane. We're going through a bunch of names, and the manager said, so, look, look, solid. Yeah, solid. That's it. We, it was like it was there the whole time. Finally, after months of working in the studio and nailing down a name, Solid releases their first album titled Give Me a Chance. And it doesn't do that well. Sales were incredibly disappointing. And to add insult to injury, the Solid guys start to see their style popping up in Korea. Other artists show up with their haircuts, their fashion. They even rip off John's eight ball cane, which is so specific. I think they felt like, well, you know, I have the rights now because they didn't make it. Looking back, Jay thinks he knows why their first album flopped. Basically, every demo that I made on my little four track cassette player, and it was like nine songs, and they all made it on the album. The album was a random collection of songs with no concept tying them together. Our first album was, it was very American sounding because we don't listen to Korean music. So it was, just, it was just very raw. The music didn't have enough Korean elements to make it familiar to a Korean audience. Like I remember managers, you know, songwriters, everybody in the entertainment industry is like, you got to sprinkle some of that bong in there, you know, like bong chak. Bong chak, remember? The soulful element in Korean music that comes from Trot? That's what was missing in Solid's album. So, Jay set out to learn how to get that bong factor or bong feel into his music. If you look at every like, major hit song in, in Korea, it has that element. Bong is essentially Korean blues,、uh, and it comes from decades of hardships and sufferings that Korean people went through, right, throughout the history. That's one of like, the secret ingredients to K pop, really. That's what I started to kind of pick up on. Korean music, the melodies are so locked into the chords. There's certain chords that the Korean music was using that was kind of like distinctively Korean. You know, there's no other way to say it. It's like a little dreamy. So Jay learns all about Bong, and he creates a new song that combines American RB with Korean chords and melodies. And then he works with a famous Korean ballad composer to dial up the Koreanness of those melodies to a 10. The whole idea was to kind of fuse Asian sound with American sound, right? In Korea, like, there's a lot of focus on the melody, whereas the US is more about the beat. So we needed to have the, the beat going on with this melancholy melody that what Korean music is all about. The result? The song is called i b a m e k u t s u r Tapko, or Holding On to the End of the Night. It's a really long title. But so poetic and nice in Korean. You know how people are very superstitious, right? 
Yeah. One of the things was like, hey, this year, if you have a song that has a really long title, it has this potential to be a huge hit. <gasps> Back to the song. Super long title, but Jay explains what it sounds like and why it's new. So right here. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Like those kind of ad-libs have never been heard before in Korea. So people are like, why, why is he bending those notes like that? Like they had never heard runs? No. Like why would they? Wow. Like those bands, right? Yeah. That's what kind of characterized the whole kind of American R&B thing in Korea at the time. Because nobody sang like that. George remembers hearing a demo of the song for the first time. I remember listening into my sister's car. It was a Celica, Toyota Celica. And when I heard that song, I said, this is it. I knew it. That's it. Because I could see myself singing it in front of a thousand people. That's the magic, man. Solid was ready for a comeback. And under new management, they dropped their second full-length album titled The Magic of 8-Ball. And this album did way better than the first. Their single, Holding On to the End of the Night, got tons of play on the radio and the guys started gaining fans. People love their R&B sound. But it was hard to tell just how famous they actually were because they were mostly doing radio shows and hadn't come face-to-face with any fans. Until... Our boss finally booked us on a TV show. The show was called Kayo Top Ten, and it was one of the biggest music TV shows in Korea at the time. And what you're hearing now is their performance on that show. When the lights come on, we went on, and the screams were so loud. It was like absolute pandemonium. I just remember our faces. We knew right then, like, oh my God, we made it. We're famous. (laughs) The fans were screaming so loud that the show's producers had to stop their performance midway to quiet the crowd a couple times. After that, Solid exploded in popularity. Giant stadiums, sold-out crowds, everything equated with big, big success. Jay remembers this one moment after a show. It was an Olympic stadium or something like that. After we sang the song and we're exiting the stage, we saw like 2,000 people follow us outside. We ran and we saw a taxi pull up. So we hopped in and then we said, hey, let's go, let's go, let's go. And he's like, what's going on? And then right when we said that, the whole mob just completely took over the taxi. We sped off. That's so nuts. That's like an apocalypse movie. (laughs) That was the first time we're like, oh my God, what was that? Did fans know at the time that you guys were from America? I mean, like, you know, if you hear the song, you can obviously hear it, right? (laughs) Yeah. The the accent is like, well, they're not from around here. It was very apparent that we were not from Korea, and we were never shy about admitting that. I was surprised to hear that fans knew they were from America. There's this word for Koreans who live abroad, kyopo. And this word is kind of complicated. Kyopo is basically slang for overseas Korean and generally includes Korean Americans. I personally never had a problem with the word because 
I feel like it's true. I'm not a native Korean person. And I'm totally okay with that. But some other Korean Americans I know, they're a little less comfortable with the designation. Because sometimes being called a kyopo can feel condescending, or even a little derogatory depending on how it's used. And the word contains this sense of otherness, right? Like, kyopo are not considered the same as people who have lived in Korea their entire lives. So the term can be kind of alienating. And the solid guys were totally considered kyopo. They were outsiders. In the early 90s, Korean Americans didn't have a great reputation among Korean locals. Here's George. I would say uh, the image of Korean Americans at that time was not very high because, um, you know, a lot of times people from America go overseas and act very obnoxious. And so um, for us being Korean Americans, that's what they expected. The solid guys had a clean image, and they think that made people more open to working with Korean Americans. I mean, we didn't drink, you know, we're church boys, right? We didn't use any curse words in our, like, rhymes or anything. It was very PG, I would say, our music. So it opened up doors for, I think, a lot of Korean Americans back then. So, oh, these guys are from L.A. They have a L.A. vibe. Ooh, they, they rap in English. Ooh, it's pretty, it's pretty tight. Whoa. They got representation. I would say uh, it was a special time in music. With Solid, they really opened a lot of doors. Here's Bernie Cho again, the Korean music exec. They actually sort of were the pioneers for Korean-American acts to break out and break through in the K-pop music scene. And in many ways, I think they did it right. And more importantly, at the right time, uh, they knew what the challenges were to break into the K-pop industry, but more importantly, as outsiders, as Korean-Americans. After their first album, Solid reached superstar levels of fame. And they continued making hits one after another. Like this song, Soulmate. Or this song, Happy Ending, both from 1996. Then, at the height of their fame, they disbanded. That's coming up after the break. Support comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years showcasing Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, featuring over 200 works ranging from narrative film, documentary films, photo exhibits, and new media. VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. 
Okay, let's be honest. Would I, Vivian Yoon, want to be famous someday? Absolutely. But I don't want to be like A-list famous. I want to be like low-key creator of your favorite show famous, you know? Because fame is intense. And K-pop idols live at the height of that intensity. They give so much of themselves and their lives to their fans. It just comes with the territory. And 1995 Solid? They were at that level. All of a sudden, we started getting people showing up at our house. Eight turned into 20. 20 turned into 40. 40 turned into 100. There was a morning team, an afternoon team, an an evening team. Sometimes the adoration went too far. Some of the gifts that came to us were letters written in blood. And it wasn't just gifts. The amount of jealousy that fans had, let's say, like I said, oh, I really like this actress. I think she's really talented or attractive. I would start getting really nasty graffiti on my door, hate notes saying, how could you like that actress? So when I was dating my wife, she would have to come through the fire exit stairs. To avoid being seen by fans. Eventually, John hit a breaking point. I really started to miss home and just miss the regular life, like going down the street, not being noticed, not having to worry about how I look or how I act. So I remember telling my group members, hey guys, um, I think I'm done. Surprisingly, they said, well, if you're going, then we're quitting too. Jay and George basically told him, without you, there is no solid. And in 1997, the group went their separate ways. They were done. John went back to finish his undergrad and found success in real estate. Jay also came back to California and continued as a music producer working with artists worldwide. And George, who used to phonetically write out Korean lyrics in English, He stayed in Korea and became a successful solo singer. He's known by his Korean name, Kim Joan. We have Korean Americans to thank for one venue through which Black popular music gets to Korea. This is Crystal Anderson, the author of a book called Soul in Seoul, African-American popular music and K-pop. It's so hard to find out information about solid. But once I had tracked down some solid songs, I'm like, yep, that's that's R&B. Like it was it was R&B, but it was being created or sung or performed by Koreans. I mean, it sounded like 1990s R&B. And this R&B that Solid brought, it had an impact. Jay Chong and the members of Solid, they were definitely part of that first wave and first generation of Korean Americans who made an impact and had influence on not just the Korean music industry, but just K-pop as a whole. This is Bernie Cho again, the music exec. I think Solid's success uh, really was pioneering in the sense that they introduced a new music genre to Korea, R&B, which in many ways still influences Korean ballad songs because a lot of the soul that they brought with R&B resonates with a lot of the top Korean songs to this day. 
the fact that they were able to work within the R&B genre and kind of find a Korean flavor to it so that it felt uh, distinctive rather than derivative, I think is a tribute to kind of their legacy on what they did for the K-pop music scene. From the moment I found out about Solid, I knew I wanted to include them in this series. But I couldn't articulate why the group was so important to me. Maybe it was the fact that they were the first all-Korean-American group to make it big in Korean music. Or maybe it was how they were proof that Korean-Americans have been in K-pop from the very beginning, influencing the sound. And all of these things are true, but there was still something else. I just couldn't pinpoint what it was. Until I listened back to my conversations with Jay and I realized there was something really familiar in the details of how he grew up. Even small things like the kids show he used to watch in Korea or how his mom had to start over when she moved to California. Or even how he met his closest friends at the Korean church they went to and bonded with them over music. It all felt so familiar. There is no such thing as a singular Korean-American experience, but there are commonalities that bind our community together. And that sense of community can be really important because when I was growing up, I didn't know how to bridge the Korean part of my identity with the American one. In all American spaces, I felt too Korean. And in all Korean spaces, I felt too American. But I always felt at home among other Korean-Americans. And I think this is why Solid's story is so important to me. Because their success was a result of their identities as Korean-Americans. The American part allowed them to absorb sounds like R&B, and the Korean part made it possible for them to understand things like bong and bend their music to fit Korean tastes. Solid figured out how to bridge the gap and allowed the totality of their experiences to inform their music, leaving a lasting legacy. And it shows me that I can bridge the gap too. That I don't have to choose between my Korean and American sides. That all of my experiences can be what makes me, me. By the way, in 2018, after a 21-year hiatus, Solid came back with an album called Into the Light. Tickets to their tour sold out in minutes, and the album peaked at number one in Korea. Next time on K-Pop Dreaming. In the early 90s, Korean-Americans from Los Angeles were bringing American influences to K-Pop. But there was something else happening in Los Angeles at the time, too one of the most gut-wrenching events in the city's history, which would go on to transform Koreatown. That's next time on K-Pop Dreaming. K-Pop Dreaming is written and hosted by me, Vivian Yoon. The show is a production of Elias Studios. Fiona Ng is our senior producer and show creator. Our producers are James Chow, Minju Park, and me, Vivian Yu. Sophia Paliza Carr is our editor. This episode is sound designed by James Chow and Emma Alabaster. Gloria Oh is our Korean researcher and translator. 
fact-checking by Audrey Regan. Parker McDaniels is our mix engineer. Taylor Kaufman is our director. Original music by Stephen Tran. Our interns are Jens Campbell and Sarah Burnett. Special thanks to Jacqueline Kim, Quincy Surismith, Topher Ruth, and the Berkeley Advanced Media Studios. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.